Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I've never had someone say, oh, that sky's yellow. You know, why is that sky yellow? They usually say, wow, that, that's a great mood, which is the ultimate goal of my paintings. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Ron Stoke. In the conversation, you'll discover a unique way to approach the colors on your palette, how to decide whether to paint around or through an object, and what you need in your focal area and everywhere else. In the extended cut bonus available at the Podcast Art Club, you'll learn how Stoke gets strategic about his subjects from a color standpoint and some of the artist's favorite combinations of gray. Take a listen now by joining the Podcast Art Club at any tier and you'll find over 30 additional extended cuts to explore. Plus, you'll get access to monthly group challenges, each designed to help you build practical tools into your art practice. In the conversation today, we talk about a few of Stoke's specific paintings and you can find links to see those in the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 78. I start the interview by asking Stoke how he got started in art. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Like many people, I got started in school. My high school instructor was a man by the name of Chuck Nas, who was a pretty well-known Pacific Northwest watercolorist. I painted with him for, you know, throughout high school and the families befriended one another, so he was kind of like an uncle afterwards. So I painted with him for a couple more years after I graduated high school. And then going to university, I studied illustration and just have always kind of carried it with me. Well, then how did you find watercolor specifically? In school, they have you work with pretty much every medium to get a feel for it. And watercolor was just right out of the gate, the one that just felt like my music. After university, I started doing most of my renderings in watercolor. And of course, I had done the painting prior to that, but it just, it felt right. It's versatile. It's, I think, the most impactful medium there is. The benefit of it is the longer you do it, the more you discover it, what the medium will do and what your capabilities are. The way you were using it for your illustration work, how much of that translated to more of your, I hate using this term, but like fine artwork, or were you using all the same techniques and tools, or was there sort of a bridge into the work that turned out to be the work you're doing now? To answer your question, yes. I had a, a whole different batch of tools that I used to use a lot of technical devices. One thing, it's, it's called a ruling pin. And basically, it's just a pin that you can adjust these two pieces of metal at the end. And I did a lot of line work with that. I used a lot of flat brushes. And I also used a lot of gouache, which is just an opaque watercolor. If you were to look at my studio now, 
none of those things are there. You know, I have a ruler behind me, but I use it mainly to cut paper and do other things with. I, I rarely use it for painting. And as you can see, I mean, I have the same disease that all artists have, that I collect way too many brushes. But that's also part of the watercolor game is, you know, when I started out, I started out with flat brushes. Now I have them, but I rarely use a flat brush. I use several Sumi type brushes. And my primary brush is a quill brush. What does a flat brush do? And why was that not working for what you wanted to do on the paper? Well, I think it would still work. I just, you know, the more you work with anything, really, the more efficient you become. And what I didn't like about the flat brush eventually later on is this really straight line. And I go into a, a section in my book about how it's visually more appealing to paint a squared shape in a rounded brush application, if that made any sense at all. What it does is it relieves the tension of the shape because there's, there's certain shapes that we have seen throughout our lives that will stick out like a sore thumb. So I've tried to change the way I paint those shapes and still tell the viewer, hey, this is a, a rectangle. What I hear you saying is that when you paint a rectangle with a flat brush, it's too perfect. It's too clean. It's got a lot of what I call just negative tension. I had someone say to me once, paint like you're driving by the scene you're trying to paint. So just that, that split second that you're your eye grabs that, and then it's gone. Your mind might be able to see everything, but your conscious mind only sees a, you know, a few things, and usually it's light and shadow and maybe a few shapes. So if you spend way too much time painting, let's say, the windows of a building, you know, you're spending a lot of time and keeping them clean and, and precise, then you're doing the painting disjustice. You're creating a lot of tension that you don't have to. Well, then those brushes, what do you, so you don't want the brushes to have a perfect shape. Is there anything else that's important for you about a good brush? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many brushes on the market. It's an overkill. And, you know, I would hate to be a beginning artist nowadays and walk into an art store because there's just, it's just overload. But what I want in the few brushes that I use is one, a point a brush that points really well so that as I'm drawing, painting is very similar to, I can get that nice clean line. And then a brush that holds a lot of medium, a lot of water, a lot of paint, so that I'm not spending too much time on the palette and spending more time on the painting. So I hear you saying that if as an artist, you find yourself having to go back to that palette all the time, you might have the wrong brush for you. You might have the wrong brush. You might have the wrong paint. I would even say you might have the wrong palette. I paint with a paint that has honey in it. It's a M. Graham paint, which is a Pacific Northwest brand up here. What the honey is meant to do is keep the paint moist throughout your painting session because honey is a natural humectant. It's constantly pulling in moisture, whether you're in your studio or whether you're on location. So that's 
the first step. Second step, I only paint on a metal palette. A lot of palettes out there, in fact, I'd say most of the palettes are made of plastic. And the idea of plastic when it was invented was for things not to stick to it. And so what happens is, and I know a lot of your artists have probably experienced this, you'll get a wash and you'll go and try to mix it on the palette and then it'll beat up. It'll almost look like it's you've pulled all the water out of it and it's just, you know, a few little drops of water. Well, that's that membrane on most plastics that does that. And then, you know, just knowing how much water to use at the stage of painting. For those M. Grand paints, does that mean the honey is acting as the binder? It's part of the binder. Every, and the reason I know this is I spent a lot of time with the paint and the paint manufacturer. I've been down to the warehouse several times to make a batch of paint. I thought that would be fun to talk to the different employees, the paint makers, the owner, and, you know, find out the science behind paint. Because today we walk into a store and there's hundreds of colors that are available to us. You know, that's fairly recent in the amount of time that we've been painting plain air. You know, the beginning artists had to make their own paint. Well, it just seemed to me like a good idea to get to know the science behind it. And so just in a general idea, all watercolors have to have a sugar to fix the color to the paper, okay? Some companies use cane sugar. Some use, you know, other types of sugar. And it's all fine. It all works. It's just honey adds that extra benefit of, you know, acting like a humectant so that it keeps that paint cake somewhat moist so that you're not having to go and re-wet it, you know, right in the middle of your painting. They're taking time away from your painting and spending too much of it on your palette. For your colors, are there any characteristics you want from your paint in terms of like transparent or granulating? Yeah, and every company makes a variety of those things from transparent to opaque, granulating, which is a sedimentary color to a staining color. And just to know the differences between a sedimentary or granulating color and a staining color is a, a good example is, is a lot of cerulean blues are granulating because the pigment, the actual pigment particle is heavy. What happens as you wash across the paper, the paper has hills and valleys in it. So that pigment will find its way to that valley, therefore leaving a little area around it so that it granulates visually. Staining colors, a lot of your viewers will know gold, that pigment is manufactured in the lab where they can perfectly arrange the size of that pigment particle so that it lays just flat on the surface of your paper. That's also why that pigment, that color, and several others have such a light to them because your eye bounces through the color to the paper and then back to your eye. So it seems like it's lit from within. So do you use all, like you're not a transparent only? No, no. You know, I need to have that good variety. Just like I have warm blues and cool reds. I have transparents and opaques. I even have a an area in my palette that has, you know, just some accent colors that I use to either create calligraphic 
line for like a, a sign in the distance or, you know, stripes on somebody's shirt or something like that. It sounds like all of your pigments have jobs to do. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to put it. And ironically, you know, when I'm painting, I try to paint with as few colors as possible. I really limit my palette. You know, for instance, we have a couple of paintings that viewers or the listeners can view on my website. Most of my paintings are delegated to four, maybe five colors. How many pigments do you use as an artist generally? Because you say you only use like three or four colors per painting, but I guess, but that doesn't mean you only have three or four colors on your palette. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, of course, I have the primaries, warm blues, cool blues, warm blues, cool reds, oranges, and yellows. Well, I have 35 wells on my palette that I currently use, and I've used this palette for decades. But I designate six of those wells to my workhorse colors, which are ultramarine blue, yellow ochre, and burnt sienna. I actually just added one to that, which is my maroon. And then in between those colors, it's basically arranged like a color wheel. Our just subtle differences between color, opacity, staining, things like that. What is the palette you use? What's the? Do you remember the brand name of your palette? It's a Weber metal palette, but there's several companies that make them. Vine is one. Now I think everybody makes some sort of metal palette, and they range. You know, they you can spend four or five hundred dollars on a metal palette, or like mine. Yeah, I think it was 50 bucks, if that. Well, for you as an artist, how important has it to keep your materials consistent? Very important. The palette you see behind me is the palette that I paint with in the studio and the palette I paint with outdoors. The brushes are the same, the boards, the paper, it's all the same. So that I'm I'm not having to relearn those tools or position of you know, the color or anything new when I'm painting on location, as I do here in the studio. Especially when we're first starting out, we're constantly changing things. I think in part because we don't understand how big a change one change is. Like we think, oh, I'm just adding a new color to my palette, as opposed to, oh man, like that's an exponential change. Yeah, and that brings up probably a bigger question of why, you know, why should I buy that brush or why should I buy that color? Look, I'm a, I'm a capitalist, but <laughs> I understand, you know, when you walk up to a rack of color and there's 200 plus colors, there's no reason to have 200 colors in your kit. It's there to sell product. And if you realize then that, then that's fine. Unless you have a purpose for that color then I don't know if I would buy it. I mean, I I experiment or a company will send me a new color here and there, but it's really got to be different or I guess really different from what I have in my palette now to add it to it. And another thing that I thought I'd mention is there there's about five wells in my palette of colors that I am, am like trying out. And so they might be there for, a year or two, or they might be there for six months. If they don't work, I get them out of there and try something new. So that's something I'm conscious of because I don't want my paintings looking the same for decades. The style might be similar, but I know that I can change the mood of the painting by changing the color. 
we're going to transition to process. Could you give me just a bird's eye view of how you would work through a painting? If I'm outside, if I'm painting on location, what I do is I go out and I study the, my subject for a few minutes. Take a look at it. See if there's a temperature that you feel or, if, you know, the, look at the light and you can tell if it's warm or cool day. That'll kind of get you in the mood of what you want to paint. I also take a picture, you know, with my cell phone. And after I've done that for just a few minutes, I start my drawing. I do a quick pencil drawing that uh, I try to limit that, you know, less than 30 minutes. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Not that there's a rule on that, but I just try to get it drawn quickly. And then I start by my first wash, which I wash usually through the entire paper. And if you can visualize, you know, wet, I don't paint wet into wet anymore per se. And the old traditional way was you wet your paper with water, then you get color in it and you apply that wet color. That always seemed strange to me because we were diluting our color, all this beautiful color. And the average color, wet to dry, will fade 10, 20%. So by diluting it with water, you're just adding to that. And that's, I think, where the wishy-washy watercolor came from. So then I, as I'm washing through my subject, when I get to an object that is lighter than this first wash, I'll paint around it. When it's darker, I'll paint through it. And that's one of the things I think most beginners have a problem doing is if they're painting a mountainscape and they can clearly see that the mountain is darker than the sky behind it, they'll paint around the mountain when they maybe should be painting through the mountain and then into the foreground by just changing colors. Don't create a, a negative tension line by leaving a line there and then into the foreground, but just change color rather than leaving lines. And then once the painting's dry, they can paint that mountain. And it does a couple things. It connects it. So it looks like the mountain is connected to the sky and the surrounding area. And it relieves that tension of that white line that we don't want. After that first wash is dry, I apply my second wash, which will be the large shapes, the large medium shapes. After that wash is dry, I, I apply some smaller shapes. And when I'm painting the large and smaller shapes, I might be dancing around the smaller shapes to create just a focal point or some interest. And then after those three washes are done, I go in with a dry brush and, and really do the fun stuff, the detail and the interesting brushwork. How is your pigment, like the wash you make, changing between each of those layers? As the painting progresses, I'm using less and less water. So the first wash, big, juicy, bold brush strokes, wet, letting things bleed into it and go crazy. The second wash, I'm pulling some water out of it. I'm using more color. Third wash, I'm really maybe 50-50 if I had to guess. And then that last application of detail, I've pulled probably 80% of the water, maybe even more than that, to where I'm just getting almost pure pigment on my brush. So if someone were just looking at your palette during that time, those washes would be thicker, like lower water, higher pigment ratio? really thicker. And since I paint with the one paint that has honey in it, 
and in my workshop, I do this on purpose. I will go around, create that dark wash, create that strong value. And I'll walk around to each student and with a brush in it and ask them to feel what it feels like, to feel the texture of that paint. And I do this for a couple of reasons. Since the values are so important, one, everybody knows what dark is. They may not paint it, but they know what dark looks like. Once you engage that second sense, that feel, I think, at least I hope, that then they can realize, okay, my dark, it looks dark enough, but it doesn't feel dark enough. Let me, let me add some more pigment or pull some more water out. And I think that helps students, you know, finish that final darkest dark value that we strive for, but a lot of us miss it. When you said you look at a scene and think about whether it's like warm outside or cool outside, does that mean if it's cool outside, that first wash will generally be cool? And if it's generally warm outside, that first wash is warm? Or how does temperature play into that? Yeah, exactly. So if I'm, if I'm painting a, you know, a really warm, moody scene, I might use my warmest blue, but more than half the time, I usually will use a, a yellow, yellow ochre or a gray and a yellow ochre. And, and we can see it when we, we, when we were in those situations where maybe we're downtown and it's just a really hot day. And yes, it's a clear blue sky, but it feels different. It feels like it's a warmer sky. And not to get you know into the weeds, but I've never had someone say, oh, that sky's yellow. You know, why is that sky yellow? They usually say, wow, that, that's a great mood, which is the ultimate goal of my paintings, which is, is the mood. When you're, let's say, and I guess for all of your washes, are you changing that wash based on the local color of the object you're moving it through? Yeah. So, you know, you start with the sky, maybe you move down to a building rather than stopping and painting around it, I'll just change color. And the great thing about that is, one, it connects it. And two, now those two colors, so you've got the sky color, say it's a cobalt blue, and the building is a burnt sienna. Now you have those two colors where they meet, they create that, that tertiary third color, which can never happen again. It creates a color that is completely unique to that painting and to you as that artist. I love that idea. I love that feeling. And I tell most of my students, try to mix your colors on the paper because no one in the history of the world will ever be able to do that. Is that where you do most of your mixing then on the paper? Yeah, absolutely. Because of that reason. Let's say you have that cobalt blue and you're going to mix it into a burnt sienna what do you have on the palette for that? And then how does that work in the palette? Yeah, I'll just create, you know, a couple large areas of color. And, you know, my palette's large enough to where I can have my warm color here with a bunch of water. So like a big wash and then my cool wash here. What normally happens is I think I mix enough color for the sky. And inevitably, I, I don't because of the way the paper absorbs the water or the temperature outside, or even here in the studio, it's just, I'm constantly mixing those large washes. 
And then what I do, I mean, if you physically want to see it, I go for my cobalt blue. I get right down into that building. And then I either clean out the brush or grab a new brush or use the same brush. You know, I just palette it on a sponge and then go right into my burnt sienna and then paint the building. And that's where that mixture comes. That's where that connectivity comes. All that really good stuff about watercolor. When you're looking at a scene, do you try, like, the first thing you see, you have confidence, like, I can make this a good scene? Or are there kind of things like a checklist or sort of like auditions in your own mind when you look at something about whether or not it would make a great scene for a painting? Sure. Well, let me answer the first question first. No, I've come up to scenes that are bulletproof and I've destroyed them. <laughs> it's all about that interest. So let's say we, we have a barn that's just getting caught by some light and creating an interesting shadow. That's where I'll probably stop. That'll stop me. And then I like to look at it and say, okay, well, where's my focal point? What can I connect? What can I edit out? What can I add to it to make it interesting if I need to add anything at all? But it's usually the light and shadow that catches me. I've Many times I've come upon a scene where, you know, it's just that split second. I mentally, I think it's a bicycle, but then, you know, I get my gear ready and I, and I start looking at it and it's a tree or it's a bush. And I think, oh gosh, now I really have to change gears here. I guess that's why I wear glasses now. But yeah, you know, usually it's the light, maybe a color if it's a sunset or sunrise that bring you to a subject. Are there any mistakes that you see beginners, let's say plein air painting, make when they're choosing a reference to paint? In general, the biggest mistake beginners make are trying to paint too much, add too much to the painting. They even may be good painters. They may be applying the material correctly, all of these things. But the amount of detail is what destroys the image. That, and I would, I would say, trying to be too careful. There's oftentimes we're all paint a wash, you know, from the sky all the way down to the foreground. And then I'll just paint shadows. So you envision this wash that goes from one color to the other, maybe warmer at the bottom, cooler at the top. And then I'll just throw in some gray shadows to spell out that object, wherever it is in the mid or background. You said that you're often struck by light. What do you do if there is no light? Like you're from the Pacific Northwest, like it's a day without sun, a season, several months in your life without sun. What do you look for then? I paint reflections or boats. No, there's always light. And I think a misconception is, you know, Pacific Northwest doesn't have the strong shadows and stuff. It, you're an artist. You're not a photographer, or I'm not a photographer. I, it's my choice whether or not to ramp up the value of a shadow or the color within the shadow. But, you know, to, I think, answer the question you're really asking is, you know, you can paint a foggy scene or a rainy scene that has just as much mood as, you know, a cityscape or an image with hard shadows in it. It's just what you really intend. And usually when you're out there and something's grabbed your attention, you've already taken the bait 
And now you're just having to figure out, hey, how can I design this so that it's interesting to me and the viewer and I have fun doing it? There's a term called the artist's eye. And that's when you come across an image that you already can see the finished painting. And that's happened to me a few times in my career. And that's great. It paints itself. You know, from start to finish, everything works because you're already looking at what you, you know, the completed painting. But more than often, you have to create it. You have to struggle through all of the steps and find your way through these steps to the end. What do you need to know consciously before you start laying down paint about your scene? When you're on location, an interesting thing is the light changes pretty dramatically. If we had to just stand out in the backyard and and watch the sun move, it feels like it's moving really slowly. But when you're painting and you've got a wet wash going or you're waiting for your wash to dry, that sun moves fast. And so your shadows will change dramatically. So when I get there, Maybe the face of this barn is all lit up. But by the time I get to painting the shadows on that barn, it's completely around to another area where the sides lit up. That's why I commit to the drawing and I take that photograph. So that even if it becomes more interesting, which is often the case where, gosh, you know, I got here, the sun was hitting the face of that building, it looked so great. But then by the time I get through to that time to where I paint the shadows, it's hitting something else and even making a more interesting shape. You think, oh, I can't do that. You have to stick with your plan. And so I'll ignore that and refer to my original plan, which I, you know, I forgot to mention, I usually will do a thumbnail sketch in my sketchbooks just to get the main idea. And then whenever I question a series of brushstrokes, I'll look at my sketch because that's that's a truer indication of where I want to end up than the actual live model or object. Does that mean also that you're really clear about what your focal point is before you start painting? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That can't change. You know, a half an hour after you're into the painting, something else is interesting that or more interesting than what you originally stopped for. Take a picture, paint it back in the studio. But on this painting that you're doing now, stay with it. Just continue on. That really takes a kind of in-the-moment discipline. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's fun to paint all of these fun shapes you see. But if you do that, then it's too confusing to the viewer. You know, that you originally planned on this focal point. Well, then you paint this fun little thing over here, and now they're competing. And the viewer doesn't have a target area to rest on. Well, yeah, then what does your focal point need to have? And how is that different from other parts of your painting? Well, like I said, when I start painting the big shapes and connecting them to the middle shapes, middle sized shapes, then the middle mid shapes to the small shapes, I'm doing a couple things. When I start the big shapes, there's very little detail. There's usually just value. Then as I move to the middle shapes, you might see some brush work and some paper that's left untouched, but very little. And then as I go into my small shapes, that's where I start to pick around and 
and really sculpt that vanishing point so that when the viewer sees the painting, they have no choice to look at that focal point, which is usually the smallest shapes or collection of small shapes, your darkest and lightest values. So maybe I've skipped around an area of the paper and left it white, but then 20 feet in front of that shape, maybe a figure is in shadow, and that's my darkest dark. Also, you know, might be where I put a real interesting color, you know, just a quick brush stroke indicating a scarf or a hat or a taxi cab, something like that. And then, you know, I always try to leave an area what I call abstract so that the viewer can kind of rest a little bit and kind of allow them to become part of the image rather than you just telling them, hey, this is a barn, that's a cow, that's a truck. Maybe the truck and the background trees dissolve into one, one another and the viewer has to interpret it a little bit. That's the strength of an impressionist watercolor. Is there generally a place on a page where you'll put the focal point? And is there a place on the page you won't put the focal area? Yeah, the golden rule is you divide your painting into thirds. So a third from the top, third from the bottom, third from the right, third from the left. And wherever those intersections cross, that's where you throw your focal point. That's kind of an old school general rule that works 100% of the time if you do the rest of the painting correctly. What I was told in school was, you know, never put your subject matter in the center of the paper. Well, I do that all the time now. And how I get away with it is, you know, leading the viewer in with my design, my composition, and then maybe leaving an entire side of a painting just a big wash, just an interesting, calm wash of color with a little bit of value. Let's say you are using the thirds and you have, you know, your lightest light next to your darkest dark, your smallest shapes there. How do you keep the viewer from going there and getting stuck? There's a method to this. They say, you know, if you do it correctly, and this is, you know, some people's opinion, where you want to grab that viewer's eye and direct them right to the focal point. And that's called the first look. And then after they've seen that and they're satisfied with it, then their eye starts to wander around the paper. That's the second and maybe third look, but it still ends up back at your focal point because you've done these things. You've created the values, the shapes, the interest in that perfect spot that the viewer has no choice than to just focus on it. And one thing I always say is keep your corners boring. And it's the same kind of philosophy as the golden rule. And basically that means, you know, don't stick the most interesting object right in the corner. Most artists know this, but, you know, we have to remind ourselves every once in a while, hey, by putting that sailboat mass right there in the corner, that might create tension. It might release tension too, depending on the, the sky, but you have to be able to feel that. That's more of a feel than a, a visual thing. How do you keep your focal area balanced within the rest of the painting? Yeah, it's all about the design and your composition. 
a lot of people will, so if we're visualizing those four points, those four intersections, and let's say our focal point, our main focal point is is on the right lower hand side, then it's always a good idea to put an object or shape across from it in the left lower side, and then right above it, right above that left corner side, maybe a smaller shape or or something to create that triangle that works. Now you can go the other way too, and there's many ways. You can you can do it with a road that meanders into the painting to kind of invite the viewer in and then end at your focal point. It's just design elements. For you, how important is drawing in both your like your process, which we're talking about, but also your practice as an artist? It's huge. I draw every day. And it's something I've always enjoyed doing. I've always, you know, I drew as a kid. And the better you draw, the better you paint. I mean, it's really that simple. And I'm not talking about drawing for drawing's sake. So if you step out and you say, okay, I'm going to do a drawing of my pet, okay, then you have to spend time drawing it anatomically correct, light, the texture, all of those things come into play. When you're watercoloring, I really concentrate just on the outside shape because the inside shape, I know if I do it correctly, won't matter. But that outside shape is what the viewer is going to look for. And so when I, you know, I'm talking to students, I say, look, draw all you want. You know, if you wanted to go crazy, draw all you want, but paint only what you need. Like when you're approaching the scene, barn, tree, cow, kind of the one we're talking about, are there parts of that that you know you need to get accurate in your drawing and parts of it, like you said, you don't even need to continue, like have, or they don't matter if you get it accurate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's say, you know, you, you want to get the perspective of the barn correct. So you draw your horizon line, you find your vanishing points, you draw that correct. And, you know, you draw the animal because if there's an animal or a figure, even a car, a lot of viewers will find that first. They'll find the mistake. <laughs> if you draw it correctly, they won't find it. It'll blend in. But then, you know, if it's a row of trees, then I'll just do a scribble. And what that does is it allows me to paint really freely right there rather than try to spell out every tree that I'm looking at so that Again, it, one, it creates that fun abstraction that I can break out and create all these painterly brushstrokes, texture, fun stuff, and it gives the viewer just an area to, to relax in. That's oftentimes what creates the mood of the painting. How do you mean? Actually, talk to me more about that. Well, you know, how you, the mood from, there's three paintings that we'll share on my website. There's three paintings of the Seattle public market. And I did this purposely for this exercise. I did one in the morning, one in the afternoon, about high noon, and then one in the evening. And they all three have a really different feel. The one in the morning, very little detail. It's got, you know, a few figures up front. It's softer. The one in the middle of the day is really hard shadows really intense shapes and shadows. And then the one in the evening is all about the light, how everything is just absorbed with this 
yellow and orange light so that that light permeates through everything. I paint the cars with that orange, you know, not just the sky. I'll, I'll paint through the foreground, through all of my cars, all through my figures, skipping around the ones that I, I want to leave white. And that way, when you're looking at it, it feels warm. You get this feeling of warmth. Now, when you're on location, or you're even if you're looking at a photograph and you want to you say, I want to push myself. I don't want to paint this blue sky and green grass. I want to really make it mine. Try these. You know, your studio is the safest place in the world to make a mistake because you can just try it and fail and fail and, and then get it right. And what happens in your studio is it's all you and you're creating this thing that no one else in the world will create again. You know, when you talked about those three different paintings, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes of how to see those three paintings, how important is it for you, and just do you think it is for someone who's maybe new to painting, to have a really clear goal when they go into a painting? Having a goal is crucial. Having a plan is crucial. Going in and saying, I'm going to paint this award-winning painting you've already lost. You've already got a strike against you because there's so many things. One, you've put so much pressure on yourself that, you know, every brushstroke you think is a mistake, it starts to eat away at that. What happens is if you're prepared, you do your sketch, maybe you take a photograph, you know where your big shadows are, your big shapes, your medium, your small shapes, you know where you want the viewer to look all the values. You do a little value study before. If you do all of that, the chances of you being successful get much better. But if you go in and just say, okay, I'm going to bang this masterpiece out without doing any of that side work, chances are you're going to fail. And believe me, I know this from experience. I've tried this and it's never worked for me. It's so interesting because like, especially when we're first starting out, there's such urgency to get to the painting. But what I hear you saying is that like this stuff takes time to both figure out internally and then time to figure out how to translate to a visual. And so it really sounds like you're not feeling rushed to start the painting. No. I mean, I've painted on the Oregon coast where, I mean, I can see the storm coming in and I think, okay, well... I've got 20 minutes to finish this thing. Or let's see what happens if a few raindrops hit my painting. You know, ultimately, it's just a piece of paper. You can paint it again. But the planning really does help. You know, I went from learning how to paint at the very beginning in kind of a loose style. I wasn't loose, but my mentor was. And then into college, where I was an illustrator, where drawing was really important and correctness was really important. And I had to, one, unlearn the looseness going into college. And then after college, once I figured out the style I wanted to paint and what made me happy, I had to break all those bad habits that I learned. Now, I say bad habits, meaning to get to where I'm at now. But I learned how to draw. I learned how to draw architecture really well. I learned how to you know, draw perspective and all of those disciplines. But it was a struggle. You know, every chapter is just a hurdle. But I still will use some of those practices today 
that I learned in university that was tight, but now I know how to visually change them so they're appealing. They match my painting style. Now, you teach classes. So for someone trying to figure out, like, a lot of this stuff, you know, we have to do on our own, right? Like, brush to paper, figuring it out. But what are the benefits of taking a class with someone? Like, you teach classes. Like, what are the benefits of turning to someone who, who has been there before? You know, there are a couple of things. It's like a time machine. It, it erases time that you'd have to figure this out. You know, a lot of beginners, they'll look at a finished painting and try to paint that finished painting by, I guess, reverse engineering it. But they don't know how to, to reverse engineer it. You have to see it. You know, I've taken several workshops in my lifetime where all the instructors say the same thing. Oh, you know, you got to pay attention to your edges. You got to watch your edges. And not until I was ready to actually see it, did I see it. I mean, it was, it was like, what are they talking about? I'm paying attention to my edges. That edge is, is perfect. But what they were saying and what I was interpreting were two different things. Plus, then new techniques. I mean, it's just everybody's got their own bag of techniques and, and ways of teaching that will help you along the ways. I would suggest to any beginner to take a workshop from somebody whose style they like that encourages them to then find their style. It might be just a small tweak, but it's their fingerprint. And when somebody looks at that painting, they can say, oh, that's a Ron Stoke or that's so-and-so's. And then go home and just put brush to paper. There really is something magical. I mean, obviously, a person has to learn how to paint. Like We have to do the work, but it's so isolated. And then to walk into a room and like see others working, but then also see someone who has skill working is such a magical, it feels like such a magical experience. It is. And it's, you know, it's like anything, like anybody who's a craftsman, who's good at their craft. And it's just time. It's time that they've spent doing it. I took a workshop from Zoltan Zabo years ago. He's passed now, but, and I was in my twenties. He said something that that just always stuck with me. He said, Ron, I've been painting for almost 50 years and I'm just now starting to figure it out. And, you know, he was a master. And I took that as, hey, I have all the time in the world to figure this out. So play with ideas, learn different techniques, do the things that will help you become a, a better painter. One, drawing. And again, you don't have to draw a perfect vase when you're doing watercolors, in fact, kind of an imperfect vase would be the way I would draw it, and then I would paint it. And then, again, just practice. You know, for your listeners, I would really encourage them to start looking at their paintings, not as illustrations or photographs, but a mood. What mood do they want to portray to the viewer? What do they want to say in their painting? If they're painting a barn, that's great, but paint your barn. Paint this barn to make it say something. And don't think that they need to believe all the rules in watercolor because the really good ones are the ones who are breaking those rules and changing those. So, you know, experiment, play. You're going to succeed sometimes and you're going to fail most of the time, but that's kind of what it is. Well, if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Draw, draw more and spend time painting. Just 
buy a bunch of paper and just go through it. Try new things and don't don't come up with an idea. Paint it halfway and give up. Always finish that painting. It might end up in the trash bin, but you will learn so much from that disaster than you will a painting that starts and ends with you know everything you wanted to do. You will try more things, you will experiment more, you'll get frustrated, but you'll also, you'll have to problem solve. You'll have to learn, hey, that's what's doing that. Either I'm going to stop doing it or I'm going to learn to control it. You can learn more about Ron Stoke, including his workshops at his website, www.ronstoke.com and on Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ron. Thank you for having me. I hope whoever your listeners are, that they picked up something to encourage them to go out and paint. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. There's more great conversation with Ron Stoke over in the Podcast Art Club, where you'll learn how Stoke gets strategic about his subjects from a color standpoint and some of the artist's favorite combinations of gray. Take a listen now by joining the Podcast Art Club at any tier, and you'll find over 30 additional extended cuts to explore, plus you'll get access to monthly group challenges, each designed to help you build practical tools into your art practice. Head to patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast and sign up at any tier to listen. Thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting. <laughs>